Welcome to the Black on Black Education Podcast, where we interview the most brilliant minds and connected hearts to discuss our shared passion for the transformation, the revolution, reimagining, and recreation of education in the Black community. My name is Eva Loren Jean Charles, founder of Black on Black Education and New York City High School teacher. And I'm Jamal Thomas, her partner and dad, education enthusiast, and we're, and we're your, your host. host. Please don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. And most importantly, to enjoy the episode. Black man, yeah. Black on Black Education Podcast. As always, we ask our guests, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Peace and love, Congressman Jamal Bowman representing New York's 16th Congressional District. Um, I'm Congressman Jamal Bowman. Uh, I work in Congress now, but prior to working in Congress, I was in education for 20 years, so I'm, I'm pretty much an educator. just happened to work in Congress. Uh, why do I do it? Um, so, you know, when I worked in education, it was never just about being a good teacher or being a good school leader. All of that was very important. Um, but for me, it was always about community transformation mm. and really using education as, as a springboard towards pretty much a revolution in black and brown communities, you know, communities that have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised and victims of European settler colonialism. Uh, you know, I've always used education as a space to, to overcome that so that we can unlock the unlimited potential of black and brown kids. So uh, that's, that's why I did it in education. and. You know, I ran for Congress because I, I realized that you can only do so much while in the school setting. And I wanted to, I thought I could help have a larger impact uh, in a larger space. So I've gone from uh, leading a school of 250, 260 kids to now representing a district with over 700,000 people. So it gives you a chance to just have a, a bigger impact. So just want to have an impact, man, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're speaking our language, right? The revolution, transformation, uh, inspiring students. And so um, our organization is all about how we amplify student voice in, in, in this work. How do we make sure that when we're thinking about how we revolutionize education, that we're not thinking about it from a teacher's perspective, from a, from a from an educator's perspective, but from the perspective of the people that we serve, the students themselves. So I'm super, super proud. My, one of my students has a question for you. Oh, um, and so we, we, we're going to... Uh, Tee it up for you so you can see. Uh, shout out to Kamoya, uh, but she, she has something that she wants to say. Cool. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Bowman. My name is Kamoya, and the question I have for you is What do you think is the biggest problem with America's education system, and what steps can we take to help solve that problem? Mm. Hi, Mr. Bowman. My name is <laughs> So, uh, good question. So, there, it's hard to identify one biggest problem, there are several problems. But one major problem is 
the way our schools are funded. Uh, our schools are inequitably funded. So if you live in a wealthy community, uh, because schools are funded by local property taxes, um, your school, the schools in those communities are gonna receive additional funding. So if you live in a poor community, your schools are funded at a lower rate than schools in a wealthy community. And what's even more insidious about this is our communities have been historically segregated by design uh, based on government policy that created the suburbs and specifically the white suburbs um, so that they could remain segregated from black communities that were ultimately devalued and redlined. Mm -hmm. So schools in Scarsdale get double or even triple the funding that schools in Mount Vernon receive. Um, so funding needs to be equitable because I would argue students in Mount Vernon and parts of Yonkers and the Bronx have more need because of historical disenfranchisement. They should be funding funded at higher rates than schools in places like Scarsdale where you're more likely to have parents who are highly educated and the like, right? So equitable funding is a big problem. And one of the ways to, to push for that is to demand and hold elected officials accountable for changing the way schools are funded in our country and in our district. So engage consistently with city council, state reps, county reps, and obviously members of Congress, and demand that they fight for equitable student funding. Um, so that, that, that's the answer to a lot of questions. A lot of us are not as politically engaged as we should be. Obviously voting is important, but in between elections, how are you engaging your members of Congress, your members of U.S. Senate, state Senate, county, city, to hold them accountable for what you know, what you need in your community. So that's one problem. The other problem is uh, our schools were designed in the, in the early 19th century, so they operate under the same pretenses and perspectives. Um, they they operate within the agrarian calendar whereas they were initially designed so kids can have off in the summer to go work on the farms and agriculture. Right? That's not the case now in many parts of the country, so um, that's one. But also, they were also designed to prepare students for an industrial economy. And, and right now, we're no longer in an industrial economy, we're in a, we're in a technological innovation economy. And our kids are doing so much with technology now and pretty much technology is like your, it's like the new second language. It's necessary uh, to be ready for a 21st century economy. So we need to think innovatively about how our schools are designed, how our classrooms are designed, and how our kids are learning in our schools. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely positively uh, you know, talking about language, and, and as you mentioned, we, we're focused on you know students and how they think about these things and it's, it's incredible when you sit down with them and, and you start to actually ask them questions um, about what they they want and how different what we are actually getting is uh, you know for, from that so one thing that I'm, I'm thinking about is one of the reasons why people are not in, as engaged as you just referenced is because I don't know that we do a pre, uh, I know that we do not do a very good job around civics education so people don't you know have a full understanding of who does what when and how uh, what are some things that that can be done, uh, 
with the understanding that so much stuff from schools is local, what can be done from a you know from, from a federal perspective to ensure that everybody understands the inner workings of, of, of our country? Yeah. Well, before I even get to federal, I think we should talk about what happens locally. You know how, you know who's on our school boards, um, who, who's who's um, responsible responsible for choosing a superintendent. How is the curric How do we decide on what curriculum we're implementing in schools? Uh, what about how kids learn um, in terms of pedagogy and instruction? How are we making sure students' voice is a part of the equation and, and a part of the conversation? You know, historically, you know, education has been top down. It's been teacher. You know, I've heard it referred to as the the banking method of education where the teacher, yeah, thank you, Paulo Freire, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the teacher is uh, depositing knowledge and information into kids and right. kids perceive it and then they regurgitate that for the test to get a grade and then they move on, whereas it should be the reverse, right? We should be designing our classrooms around things like Socratic seminar, project-based learning, higher order thinking questions, rooted in needs of community so that kids' voices are now driving the curriculum. And there are schools, you know, different parts of the country that do this pretty well. But all schools need to do that well. So, you know, local school boards need to, and, and residents in the community need to demand that their school boards implement this in their school district if this is what they want. Um, but also, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, state conversation that's a that's a and that's a federal conversation so for me we introduced a policy called the green new deal for public schools uh which is about a variety of things um it's about schools being the leader in terms of ending our dependency on fossil fuels mm -hmm. and using clean renewable energy to to power our schools um having having kids and families at the seat at the table uh in terms of developing a curriculum in alignment with, with STEM and renewable energy. Mm -hmm. um, making sure we have a pipeline for teachers from the community and teachers assistants from the community and nurses and school counselors from the community to work in those schools. Uh, the the uh, construction and advanced manufacturing and, and, and labor that's needed in those schools. Make sure that's done by the, by the community. Um, and also the student-directed learning is a part of that policy as well. So uh, our bill seeks to shift paradigms and reimagine what public school uh, is, should be like and it's supposed to be like. So one of the things we can do at the federal level is both the policy but then the advocacy and then using the power of our voices and having these conversations. I love, I love it, and I, I like the, the key word for me there was advocacy and what it looks like because that's such a huge part of civic engagement, right? Like, how do we arm students with the with the tools that they need to be able to be advocates for themselves? Because again, when I talk to people about the idea that like my students have a very clear idea of what they want, um, but you just never sat down and had a conversation with them, and so when you're you're a teacher who has an unruly classroom, have you ever asked them like? 
what's causing this behavior. Um, and nine times out of 10, just that one conversation shifts things. So what happens when we're having more and more of those conversations within within individual schools, within school districts, and so on and so forth. So I, I love everything that you said there. And I think like moving into our next question, you alluded to this, but I want to, to dig into it and, and make it kind of plain. What does educational justice look like? Yeah, so it's, um, it's equitable funding, um, it's small class sizes, it's, uh, it's multiple pathways. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is right now we have a very traditional way of how we teach, how we teach and learn and how the curriculum is structured to make students college and career ready. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you gotta take uh, you know, it's algebra, geometry, trigonometry, pre-calculus, calculus, and that gets you ready for Harvard and Yale and town colleges, right? Um, but that that's not the only math pathway towards what I think we should be focused on, which is purpose and meaning mm -hmm. and self-discovery, more so than a top college or a top career. Because if you focus on purpose and meaning and self-discovery, you gain knowledge of yourself, and through that knowledge of yourself, you uh, you discover your pathway, or your pathway is manifested uh, for you. Um, you know, and then yeah, some kids, a lot of the kids, the traditional pathways work for them, but it doesn't work for everyone, right? We need to understand that, you know, equity is about responding to the diverse needs of the kids in your classroom. Um, and those diverse needs can be everything from kids who learn differently, uh, kids who are artistic and creative, kids who have interests in things outside of the traditional curriculum. You know, intelligence is diverse, and intelligence is uh, omnipotent and omnipresent and, and unlimited. So, you know, how do we create learning spaces where kids get choice? Like, I think high school should be more like college. Yeah. Like, I think kids should choose their classes right. in high school. Um, I, you know, at least have the option. Right. Again, the traditional route, kids who don't want to choose, just give me my, you know, they have that. But then there's other kids who need choice. Give them choice. And then, we you know, when, when we help kids find meaning and purpose, and when we help adults, by the way, because a lot of adults still haven't found meaning and purpose right. yet, and they're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Right. Um, when we help communities find meaning and purpose, you'll see a dramatic decrease in crime. You see a dramatic increase in life expectancy, in health and education outcomes, and economic outcomes, and innovation and creativity, and in, in in uh, decrease in wealth inequality, all of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you and then you see kids who and people who are more global thinkers and pushing back against this settler colonialism structure that is oppressive to the majority of people, even uh, even white people. It's right. oppressive to right. them too. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so I, I was a terrible student. I was really just did not do a very good job um, in, in, in school at all. Uh, starting 
you know, right around middle uh, middle school. I was pretty good in, in, in elementary school. Uh, so the teachers would always say, oh, you know, Jamal, you're so smart, but it doesn't apply itself for. And it was, I, you know, in my head, even at the time, I was like, apply myself to what? I don't care what the capital of these places are. Like, I didn't, I don't care. And right now we're in a situation where so many students are walking around um, just not engaged in the learning process. And, uh, and, and we hear mm. people. I push back on that. Okay. They're, they're not engaged in the education, in the schooling process. Touche. They, they are absolutely engaged in the education process. Absolutely. I, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. The, 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 so that, that difference between schooling and education, a bridge needs to be built between, between the two of them. Yeah. So that, to your point, when children arrive at school, we, we start to understand, hey, you know, what, what, what is it that, that kind of turns you on? What, what are the things that, what, what, what's, when's the light, you know, kind of shine in that student's eyes? And we communicate to that student differently than, the, than we communicate to that student. There's all kind of tools that allow us to do so. It just seems that the will is, is not always there. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's, you, you talked a little bit about the community focus, you know, within the, the the education system and um, some places I think are doing it other places you know are, are, are not I, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on how we get um, you know kind of all of the various different stakeholders you know just people complain about the dollars and cents related to you know edu yeah. education if all of the stakeholders um, you know got to like use the school building for instance like if, if everybody got to, to go find that that purpose in the same place um, how might that ch change the, the dynamic of the people who are just you know fooey to the teachers you know fooey to the yeah. you know any more money to these kids yeah no I agree with that you know we um, I, so my, my, my dissertation is on the perceptions and practices that nurture collaboration within the community school ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's really focused on community schools and what community schools are all about. And you know, the school that I opened and ran for 10 and a half years, uh, we tried to operate as a community school. So you know, we were open six, seven days a week. You know, we had all kinds of programming, academic and social and athletic, and the arts, you know, for kids and families. Um, so it was a really, and we didn't even go as far as I wanted to go. Like I wanted to do even more um, with our with our community school. So you know, I see always seen the school as the as the heartbeat of a community, and the hub of the community where so much can happen there um, throughout the evening and weekends and summers. Like I should never be closed. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, but that bridge, and I would add that bridge you talk about between schooling and education, education and schooling, I think the bridge is learning. Mm -hmm. And I think when we focus on learning in and of itself and, and what learning is, uh, particularly authentic learning and organic learning and intuitive learning, uh, then, because learning is, is inspirational, learning is uplifting, learning is exhilarating and inspiring and empowering. So we focus on learning. If schools focused on learning and not academics, but not only academics, kids will have a different disposition towards school. You know, the key is learning. I mean, look, we're here, you know, having this podcast. We've got all these cool cameras, all this cool lighting. Uh, we got these cool microphones. Like, what if kids learn about this stuff in school? You know what I'm saying? And, then, and again, there are schools that do this, right? Different parts of the country. I just think, you know, when you look at Bloom's taxonomy, the top of Bloom's taxonomy is, uh, is creativity, 
if we turned that upside down and focused on it with creativity uh, as the goal, the whole curriculum would be upended. Right. And kids would be able to do all kind of dope stuff. A lot of people would start making money, though. There'd be some people out there that, you well, know. Well, that, yeah. That. I mean, if money, well, I think it's, it'll be a shift, right? Like, it'll be just zooming out to, like, the the, the national and, and, and how we how we measure our our health as a nation. We measure it with, with something called GDP, gross domestic product, with with how much product we're creating and sharing. Um, that's how we measure it. If we design schools with creativity in mind, first and foremost, our GDP will grow exponentially. Because now you'll have equity and you'll have more kids and groups and communities producing goods and services for the world to use. I was being tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, like yeah. The of the world. No, no, yeah, they'll be done. Testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be obsolete, yeah. which is which is good because they've been harmful, in my opinion, to, you know, the, 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 the companies that make the textbooks and standardized tests that we've used for decades have been harmful, um, yeah. you know, over, over several, several decades. I mean, I think like what we're what we're alluding to is is the idea of of incentives in education, and so right now, it, for a lot of educators, it feels like the incentive uh, for students is a grade, but we recognize that they have access to so much information that the grade has lost its meaning. Um, like for me, coming out of a class and seeing a ninety eight percent like. It, it was like a high. I, I loved the idea of like, I knew 98% of the questions, like that made me feel so good. And so like when I'm connecting with my students and they're like, yeah, I failed. And I'm like, I don't understand you. Um, but then when you start to have like deep and meaningful discussions with them, you start to understand that it's like, well, I'm really good at creating posters and like using and analyzing and, and making slide decks. And I'm really good at like presenting my information through what I say. So when you ask me to write it all down, like I, got, I get bored by that process, I'm over it and I don't care. And so then it's like, what does it look like for us to create a system that incentivizes as you said, the creativity of students or the things that students are already naturally inclined to yeah. rather than incentivizing um, or having the incentive be something that has lost meaning for them. And, and you and you talked about, you know, you love to get that 98. And I, you know, I guess it really didn't matter much to me. Um, but what if we flip that around so that when somebody gets the, the right now it's a big red F, so you only got 50% of the questions right. If we like go to those students and say, wow, you got 50% of the questions right. Now you can go get 60%, now you can go get 70%. So instead of taking away from what people got wrong, let's celebrate what they get right uh, as, 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 they, as they ascend in their learning process. Because if they play video games, so they level up, um, we're, we're asking them to do something that's opposite of the way that they tend to think about the, the, the world. So it, it's... Um, yeah, yeah, so those are all both very, very good points. Um, you know, there, there's a difference. So assessment is obviously a big part of education. Yeah. You know, and... But we don't really have very public conversations about what we... what what, how do we define assessment? Mm. What are the different types of assessment? And when do you use which assessments for what, right? Mm. So 
you know, two, two ways to look at assessment. There's summative assessment, right, where you learn the material in the unit, and then at the end of the unit, um, you have a, a unit exam where it's, you're being assessed on everything you learn in the, in the unit, uh, and, then, and then you take the test and you get a grade, and that's your grade for that unit, right? Summative, so it's a summation of everything you learn. But then there's formative assessment where within that unit, you may take quizzes, right? Or, or like a mid-unit exam that can be formatively used as well. And let's say you get a 58 on a formative assessment. Um, and let's say the teacher grades, let's say it's 20 questions, you get, you know, you get 12 right. And then the teacher gives the paper back to you and says, you got these eight wrong. Take another look at those to see if you could, you know, figure out what you got wrong. That right there is master teaching. Because that that's like, this is it was formative, it's not, it's not the end all be all when you take the mm -hmm. test once. You get it back. Now let's say the kid goes back and he or she fixes six of the eight or seven of the eight. Now you just strengthened a neurological muscle that that teacher gave you an opportunity to strengthen that you wouldn't have had the opportunity if you had just been given a 58 yeah, right, and, told and, called, and called it a day, yeah. right? So that we need to do more formative assessment in schools and not only summative, which is what the annual state test is, right? More of a summative. We need to do way more formative because we need to build those perseverance muscles uh, within the brains of our kids, you know? And, and, and I would also add, that in many ways grades are obsolete. Yeah, they, they don't matter. Grades are obsolete. Obsolete in a way where like we need to focus more on the learning Absolutely. and not just on the outcome. Right. Like what what yeah. can we implement? Can we, what if we took away grades? Right. Then kids will focus on learning, and then they will get narrative grades that explain where they are in relation to a particular standard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, these are, this, is a, this is about reimagining education and redesigning it in a way that's more in alignment with who we are as humans and, and what we're trying to do as a society. What did students say the other day about, um, about tests? So right now I'm running a summer program where we are thinking about what the most pressing issues are in education. So students have had the opportunity to reflect on what their educational experience has been, their incoming freshmen, um, and they've all created research projects around issues in education that they feel passionately about. So one of my students um, doesn't believe that there should be state exams. He believes that rather there should be school-wide exams that would give students less anxiety, but also is actually reflective of what was taught to them. And so the reality is, is you have a U.S. history exam that is hundreds of years of information, and some random person makes the decision on what parts of history they're gonna they 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 want students to learn, and then expect that the way the teacher taught, how the teacher taught, and what the teacher taught is going to do enough to allow them to pass this exam that nobody can see until the day of the exam and it's just like over with. Yeah. Um, and so he he basically was saying that like, I've been in situations where like, I'm a good student, I feel like I learned a lot in school, but then I take this test and half of what was on there, I didn't. my teacher didn't teach me. Yeah. Uh, and so, and depending on how you teach, you don't get to teach as much content. Yeah. In my classroom, we don't teach a lot of content. 
we have discussions, we have conversations, we experience learning. And so if my kids had um, a, a, summative, a summative exam at the end of the year, they probably, faring up with some other schools, they probably wouldn't do very well on it. But it's also because I don't value it. Um, and so there's, there's, there is, that comes into play. So I just bring that into this conversation because it's so important, and this is what I said to him about why his topic was important. Um, in real life, it is not about what you learn. It is about how you learn. When you go into a job, it's, they, they don't expect you to come in knowing absolutely everything about how to do that job in that position. But if you are, showcase an ability to learn, then we get to have a conversation about why you're, you fit in this position because you have the capacity mm -hmm. to do learning, to experience learning. Yeah. And so I think that that is, is it just, it's, it's speaking exactly to what you're talking about is how do we incentivize the experience of learning because that is what is actually needed. And I want to quickly add one more part to it and, and based on something you said too, grades are obsolete and that's grades and grades. Um, so the idea that um, we have to have first, second, third, fourth, fifth mm -hmm. grades um, in this arbitrary fashion, like everybody is moving lock, stock, stock and barrel and everybody's gonna learn all of these subjects the same way at the same time. And and what, what it takes away is the third grader helping, the, the, the current third grader helping the first grader. It takes away that, that um, oh, he's curious about that. Oh, I'm curious about that too. And, and it, natural ways that kids would gravitate towards one another around ideas and have idea babies that they get all excited about. Um, that would happen across what we currently have as, as grades. And hopefully even, you know, I want it to happen across buildings. Like yeah. even if the walls of the school become become walls of that, that, that block potential learning yeah. because these kids don't get to work with those kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we we know a kid uh, that is is she, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a gift to be able to, to watch uh, my, my cousin grow up. Uh, but she has a question for you, so I feel like this is a perfect time because she is a five-year-old, or not even five, well, not even six yet, a five-year-old about to turn six, um, and she has a question for you about, about the education system. Awesome. I think there's two wrapped up in there. Yeah. <laughs> question. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so the question was, you know, what does it take to, to make healthier foods for schools? She had tastiest. That was tastiest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is right. Yeah, it just takes, you know, this goes back to investment um, in education and how much we spend on education. It also goes back, back to, like, the will to just do it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of this stuff is simple answers, man. Like we just got to do it. Like there's no reason why we can't. In my opinion, school lunches should be some of the healthiest and best tasting that you have. Like it should be like top level chefs in schools cooking for kids. But we don't. You know, we we give the slops, if you will, to to public school kids, right? And, and it's and why? Because they're public school kids. Because they're low-income kids. And I wonder, and I need to assess this because I haven't done this yet, I wonder what public school lunches in Scarsdale are like compared to the Bronx. i got to check that out. Because right. I've seen the difference between public, uh, private school lunches and public school lunches. I know it's night and day. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wonder if wealthier school districts have better school lunches. I, 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 I traveled across the country uh, with the 250 schools like for personal care brand. Yeah. And, and you know, we showcased this 
really good experience, talked to them about hygiene, things yeah. like that. But sometimes I got hungry and sometimes I dipped into the restroom yeah. for yeah. a little something, something. And yes, there were places that had gourmet, yeah. you know, type type meals and nice looking baked yeah. chicken and various different things yeah. to that effect. There, there, there were places that, it, it, it's, I mean, it wasn't as good as my food, but yeah. it was, you know, <laughs> but, but, but places where they definitely, definitely, definitely ate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, this is, this is, you know, we're, we're a nation of inequality. Um, and we have been from the beginning. And, and so, you know, when you're, when you're poor and or black or brown, you get less. Your schools are underfunded, your communities are redlined. It's just, it's inequality, right? So it's just the will and, and it's just the investment. And, and the thing about investment, you know, we talk a lot about money. You know, we talk about how much things cost and do we have enough money and all of that. And what I remind people is, um, that's the wrong question to be asking. The question we should ask is, do we have the resources? Do we have the people to make the food? And do we have the ingredients to cook the food? And if those two answers are yes, then we should be able to have gourmet spreads in every school in the country. And then we figure out how to pay for it. Because at a federal level, we spend money into existence. We have a Federal Reserve, which is a private corporation that literally prints money and controls interest rate, rates and inflation by how much money they print and put in circulation. And when the federal government needs money, we tell the Federal Reserve we need money for X, Y, or Z. And the federal money good, federal reserve gives us that. And then we make some of it back on taxes, and that keeps the whole thing in balance. So inflation and certain things get out, don't get out of control. The problem is uh, the the um, the system is rooted in inequality. So we have to have a certain amount of unemployment to keep inflation under control, and we don't have wealthy individuals and corporations paying equitable taxes. Sometimes they pay no taxes. Right. So because of that, we can't generate the revenue to reinvest in education mm -hmm. in an equitable way. Right. So poor black and brown kids get to show that with the stick. And, and poor black and brown kids are, to a large degree, who gets the short end of the stick on all of these spectrums. Correct. And so then... I just connected it, that to oh, school lunch. Absolutely. But when you look at affordable housing, when you look at education overall, when you look at green spaces in communities, when you look at wealth inequality, it's... it's, it's it these are policy decisions yeah. that often come from the federal government. Yeah. And all of it continues to get expounded because the people who go to those best schools, they wind up going to the next best schools and then they wind up becoming the people who are inside government and then they make more decisions that assist people like them and keep the system the way that it's always and, been. And poor black and brown people get, get the crumbs and get the, um, get the charity. You know, a lot of those people that you just described think if they do their charitable stuff, yep. that's enough. Right. But no, Even it's not they're in power to make the systemic change where the charity becomes well, the Yeah, they're also not built to make the systemic change. That's why having someone like me in Congress is such a big deal because I come from like, you know, my mom worked in the post office and I used to live in the projects and I used to get in trouble in school and didn't do well at all. Um, 
and and you know I've been arrested and I've been beaten by the cops. You know what I'm saying? I got real lived experiences of historically marginalized people because I am one of them. So the short answer to the question um, is we can and we should, but the government doesn't care enough about poor black and brown people. That's the answer. Right. And, and, and so the, the solution to that is we need new government officials right. who do care. Right. You actually teed up, you know, where, where I was going. I was going to make a make a switch because I know you were raised by a single mother. Um, and, you know, listened to some of your, your interviews and stuff. And I was just like, oh, man. But when I asked you I, um, to do this, I didn't know that you had been a former educator and oh. fatherhood and all of that stuff. So it just came together that this was perfect. Yeah, based on your questions, it looks like you two did your homework. Not like when I was in school. That's what, that's what journalists are supposed to do, do your homework. Background on your guests. You, you, you both did a very good job. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about, you know, being raised by a single mother, how that affected, you know, your schooling, and then also how that affected your desire to be the best possible father that you could be. Yeah, father and educator, I would add. Um, yeah, so, you know, my pops was around but not around, you know what I'm saying? Like, I knew him, I knew where he lived, I would go to his house every now and then. But for the most part, you know, he would be like, yeah, I'm coming to pick you up and never show up, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? So he did that a bunch of times. Um, but my mom held it down. Like she, she went to work. She came home. She made dinner. Next day we had leftovers, um, and that was the routine. And uh, she, uh, I don't remember this, but she was like she used to read to me all the time. I remember coloring, you know, doing doing coloring, coloring books with her, and spent a lot of time with her. Um, I also had two older sisters um, who also held me down as well. So I was very lucky. You know, I didn't, I didn't have my pops, but I grew up in a very nurturing, loving safe home, uh, which is real important. And, you know, I don't take that for granted because a lot of kids don't. You know, if you don't grow up in a safe home, it's really hard to to, to have that kind of trauma and go to school and learn, right. you know what I'm saying? Right. So because of all that, you know, learning was never hard for me. Like I, I was, you know, and, and, there, and there's, there's research that shows if you grow up in a traumatic environment, your brain doesn't develop properly. Right. It doesn't develop the executive functions it needs for higher order thinking. Something called ACEs, adverse child experiences. Um, I was lucky where I did have a few traumatic experiences, but for the most part, it was a nurturing home. So learning in school wasn't uh, wasn't hard. But to your point, I, I, I wasn't interested in the curriculum, I was disengaged, unplugged from the curriculum. I went to school to like mess with girls and have fun with my friends. Like that's why I went. To, that's that was school for me. That's the uh, so so um, so I didn't take the learning part seriously until tenth grade when I failed every class and I was getting in a lot of trouble, like in the streets. And I was like, yo, I gotta, I gotta leave New York. It was it was it was too much peer pressure and too much. You made this, this you made this decision. Yeah, pretty much. So I think my mom and dad had a deal that like after junior high school I would go to him for high school. So after junior high school, they asked me if I wanted to move and live in, live with him. I'm like, no, you know, I don't really know him like that. I don't want to leave my friends. But after that tenth grade year, when I saw I failed, when I failed everything, I was like, yeah, I gotta leave. So I was like, yeah, I'll go live with him. Um, and it was cool too because you know I got to get out the city, 
live in the suburbs, Sayreville, New Jersey, and they had a football team. I got to play football, and I did pretty well. Um, and like, yeah, that kept me on the path to like playing in college, and then you know, just away from the street, you know. Right. Um, so, but most of my learning came from outside of school, you know. And and actually, hip hop was my curriculum, mm -hmm. you know. And I, and, you know, I'm 46, so I grew up during the golden age of hip hop. So, you know, artists like Eric B and Rakim and, and Public Enemy and Karis One and uh, Big Daddy Kane and you know, X Clan, you know, these artists, they were not, not just artists, like they were like griots, you know, they were like poets, they were like messengers from the high, like they were, they gave me knowledge of self. So that knowledge of self is probably the most powerful thing I ever received in school until I got to graduate school and started learning, learning about the 10 theories of psychoanalysis. Hip hop was the, the highest level of education I ever received. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we have another student question. This is going to be our last student question. Okay. Um, it, and it's going to, I'll follow up with, uh, with, with, a, with a question that relates to it. This is... Hi, Mr. Bowman. Hope you're well. As you know, New York has given people the ability to carry concealed weapons. How will that impact the already rampant gun violence in our communities? And how can we make the best of that situation? Thank you for answering my question. Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's something I'm, I'm very worried about. Um, so, you know, I'm concerned because what what's to stop someone with a concealed weapon from feeling threatened by a big black kid and taking out that gun and shooting the big black kid? Like, what's to stop that from happening? So I, I'm very, very concerned about that. Um, the issue of gun violence in our communities that already exists, and in this district, it's, it's the Northeast Bronx, Mount Vernon, and Yonkers more so than anywhere else, even though I think so far, the numbers have come down tremendously, which is good, we gotta keep that up. But that issue is more, there's federal policy that could be implemented to, to deal with that issue. Um, but we have senators who don't want, who, who, who don't want to, don't want comprehensive gun reform in the way that's needed mm. to stop the flow of illegal guns into cities and illegal guns in the black and brown community. So there's a bill, HR 8, in the Senate right now, which would close the gun show loopholes, which would close the online purchase loopholes, and will do more for, for gun trafficking and making sure that law enforcement agencies work together to stop gun trafficking. Mm. Um, but there's senators who don't support that. Right. And we need we need 60 of the 100 senators to support a bill in order for that bill to pass the Senate right. because of something called filibuster. Um, so that's the, that's the major issue there. Uh, we need to pass a federal policy that's comprehensive enough to stop this from happening. Um, another thing related to that that I think it's important to mention is there are people who are okay with illegal guns going into black and brown communities so that black and brown people can kill them themselves right. kill each other. Right. Um, that, that's, you know, white nationalism, the belief that, you know, it's important, in the great replacement theory, the belief that it's important to maintain, for white people to maintain a numeric majority in America 
so that they can maintain their political power. Right. That's a real thing. Right. Like, so people, my colleagues in Congress and the Senate are making policy decisions based on that understanding. The reversing of Roe v. Wade is another example of that. Um, you know, which is why at a Donald Trump rally shortly after the, the, the Roe v. Wade was on overturned, a woman thanked Donald Trump for appointing the three Supreme Court judges, judges and saving white life. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a history of eugenics in this country where um, there, there was sterilization of, of, of uh, black and brown people so that they can reproduce and procreate. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that needs to be done on the federal right. level uh, to deal with the issue of gun violence in, in our communities. And how do we make the best of it? Um, so we all read about the civil rights movement. We need a, we need a, a human rights movement right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's the only way I think we're going to take back political power in Congress which is currently controlled by special interests. Right. It's controlled by big money. Big money controls politics. So when you have a candidate like me, someone like me who doesn't take money from corporations, I'm not beholden to the corporations, I'm beholden to the community. Right? Yeah. So you know, I could meet you at a random event and you tell me you got a podcast about education. I'm like, oh, let me come on and come through and right. just do it. Right. Because yeah. I, I, I'm... I'm here by myself. I have no staff. Like I'm, I, that's how I roll. Community first. My colleagues don't roll like that. They get they take money from fossil fuels. They take money from pharmaceutical companies. They take money from the military industrial complex. Uh, they take money from from the NRA. Um, so they're gonna they're gonna write policies that benefit those corporations, and they don't care about us. And I mean, you, you said a lot there, and, and it, these are things that I think you know a lot about. I'm you know somebody who are, you know most would consider like politically astute, and you know it, it's it's it seems that it's like irreconcilable <laughs> a lot yeah. of the challenges that we that we have um, currently in in this country, and, and you're you know in the you know you're in the the, the real you're, you're gladiator, <laughs> you're belly of the beast, really 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 in the arena. Um, I'm so curious from your perspective of of, of somebody who's who's in there. What are the things um, that can be done to, to start to turn the temperature down a little bit in this country? And, and, and when I say turn the temperature down, I, I mention this to people a lot of time. I want people to know that civil society is not promised. Like, it could all burn down. Like, it, could, it could all be messed that's up. A, that's, a, that's a great statement. That's a very powerful statement and a very true statement. And, and if people understood it, they would know that, that we have got to find ways to, to you know, not always talk past each other, not always talk, you, you know, so, so like, what are you doing in, in Congress to, to, to the people who we might think are crazy, you know, <laughs> that, that, that to, to say, you know what, I'm going to find some way to work with them on something. Yeah. Um, how, how do we turn the temperature down and, and, and help us? Yeah, I think, um, I think 2016 was a very, so I, I'll go back to 2008. 2008 was a very important election because we elected our first black president, Barack Obama. And um, symbolically, that was really important. And, and symbols matter and they're powerful. You know, I don't know if I would be here if I didn't see mm -hmm. him do that, right? Um, so then he does two terms. 
And then after him, there's a, there's a, there's a race for the president. And on the Democratic side, there's Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And on the Republican side, there's Donald Trump and everybody else. And I think what, I think what Bernie Sanders' race exemplified was something very, very powerful that we could really build on and that we have built on since his race. So, you know, he didn't win his race, but he started to articulate how, how, uh, how corrupt our economic system is. And he started to articulate the inequality in the system, like how CEOs make 300 times their workers and how workers' rights have been under attack for. So he made a powerful economic argument. Um, and he lost, and then Hillary lost to Trump. But a volunteer on Bernie's campaign was a woman by the name of, of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who then in 2018 decides to run against Joe Crowley in Queens of the Bronx and beats Joe Crowley, which is now like shakes the political landscape, right? Because no one would have thought that some unknown bartender Latina is gonna run against this this person who's a who's a political institution and beat him. And she did. At the same time, another Latina that a lot of people don't know about named Alexandra Alexandra Rojas starts an organization called the Justice Democrats, which then which helps Ocasio Cortez win in twenty eighteen. Ocasio-Cortez wins, wins in 2018, along with three other women, uh, the first two female Muslims in U.S. history to win in Michigan and Minnesota, and then Ayanna Presley wins in, 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 in Boston. And now the four of them are four freshmen women of color, don't take corporate money, speaking truth to power in a way we haven't probably ever seen before, ever to the point where Trump starts targeting them, the, the establishment starts targeting them, literally going to rallies and chanting, send them back to their countries, right? So this is 2018. What happens in 2020? You know, middle school principal from the Bronx challenges Congressman Elliot Engel to a race that no one thinks he has a chance to win, and he wins the race by 16 points. So now you got the full, Four women in the squad, and Congressman Jamal Bowman is now in office, and Elliot Engel is out. And then right after his race, Cory Bush and St. Louis wins. So now you got six people in Congress who are outsiders. We're not rich. We don't have. We don't haven't been in politics our whole career. Well, me, Alex, and Cory, Ayanna, Ilhan, and Rashida, I think we're local elected officials. So you have a shift now that we're not doing politics as usual. We're not going with the party just because we're supposed to go with the party. We're not accepting status quo at all. We're challenging the whole thing. And that's a powerful thing. And that's just the last two, four years. 2018, 20, four years, two, four years for them, two years for me. So the question is, and then we had two more big victories this year as well. So, so, then, so the question is, as we organize in our living rooms and strategically plan the next five to 10 to 20 years, 
What does that look like? You know what I'm saying? Um, a lot of the people, Joe Biden is 80 years old. Many of the leaders in Congress are 80 years old. They on the way out, one way or the other. <laughs> and new voices are coming and new voices are coming in. Right? So just through turnover, things are gonna change. But I but for me it's not about waiting on the turnover, it's about making the turnover happen, like mm -hmm. making the change happen. So how do we how are we mobilizing locally and nationally to make the change happen, make make the change happen that we need to make? In my opinion, we need to we need to revise the electoral college, mm -hmm. maybe even end it completely. We need to end the filibuster. We need to expand the Supreme Court. Um, we need to consider multiple multiple political parties. Final five voting? Huh? Final five voting, open primaries? Open primaries? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so many states have open primaries. New York is one of them that don't. Right. But yeah, yes, yes. The point is democracy reform. Mm -hmm. and, and the point is also, in my opinion, a new constitutional convention where it's not just able-bodied, property-owning white men in the mm -hmm. Constitution, right. it's all of us. Right. Yeah. Looking at it line by line by line. Mm -hmm. What works, what's good, what isn't working, how do we revise it? And part of that is also going to be getting big money out of politics because, because that, that cements inequality in place for forever. <laughs> because it, it, you know, the, the inception of America was slaves and masters. That's still the dynamic right. from a financial perspective. Right. Mm. Yeah, it, it, I mean, that part. <laughs> 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 that, that, that part. And, and so I, when I think about change that's happened throughout the history of this country, it's been young people who, who do it. It's, yes. it, it, it it's, it's a young person's game, but right now it seems that uh, oftentimes youth are, are engaged and they don't feel like they have the power. So, you know, I think somewhere in the area of, I, 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 I I'll, I'll, I'll finish, oh, let me just finish. Um, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that they, that, what, I think I know where you're, where you're going to go with it, but they don't look at voting as the as as the way to do it, and that's why it's a, a, a limited number of people um, go out and vote. What I wanted you to speak to, like to, to actually speak to young people, like the, the, the ones that are out there, the ones who we're going to going to send this message to, help them understand that if that they could truly, if if they said that this is what's going to happen, and then they all come out and vote for those things, they they now are millennials have enough. And Generation X, the people who can vote. Gen Z. Gen, Gen Z, I apologize. Um, I think we're Gen X. We are Gen X. Well, I'm an exennial. Um, you know, 78 to 82. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 the point being that if they were to come out and, and actually vote somebody who they bring to the, to the table, that we have the power to, to uh, to remove those, yeah. you know, the, 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 the geriatric, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean I, I'm, I'm exhibiting this. I mean, if, if, if our community doesn't vote, I don't win, you know, and I won. And now I'm in Congress and we have a whole different conversations. You know, the, Elliot Engel would not, no offense to Congress Engel, but he would not be here having this conversation about this in this way with you all. Um, so it's coming out and voting that, that, that led to this victory. But 
And it's not just voting. In between elections, what are we doing? Right? Like, what are we doing in between elections to exercise our self-determination of power to ensure that when the election comes up, we're, we're, we're fully informed, engaged, and we're holding elected officials accountable to do what's necessary for our communities. Um, you know, in, in the defense of people who don't vote or don't believe in voting or who are disengaged, um, if elected officials haven't done a good enough job of engaging them, which we haven't, and if uh, the status quo remains election after election after election for someone's entire life, mm -hmm. you can see why they, they feel disenchanted and disengaged, right? So, um, but what, what I would encourage is we gotta fight through that. Yeah. Like we can't allow ourselves to be lethargic or apathetic mm -hmm. um, or, or, or depressed. We gotta push through that and fight through that. Um, and it, yeah, and I was just gonna add it's also and it's hard too because there's so many distractions mm -hmm. that 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 keep us in in, a, in 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 powerless positions. You know, you got you got social media, you got mainstream media, you got movies and television shows, you got the you know you got love and hip hop. You know, you got the, the, the housewife. You got you, weapons of mass distraction. You know, you got alcohol, you got you got pills, you got weed, you got your, your girlfriend or your or your partner. All these things are like distractions, and, and sometimes life is so overwhelming, you just want to unplug from that. So it's real, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's that's the uphill battle. Too, you know? I think what I was gonna say as the push of that, I think that there are so many young people who feel empowered to do this work. But they're not being they're not being supported in the way that they need to be supported in order for their messages and their thoughts and their ideas to be to be out there. Supported right? how? Supported by by monetarily supported in terms of organizations receiving receiving uh, funding at the same rates as uh, as as larger organizations that have been around for a longer time that some at times are are led by people who have very particularly narrow views about what sorts of change needs to be created and so those revolutionary folks at times are not being um, amplified in into the degree that they need to be and so I think that there are there are um, Siloed conversations that happen that oftentimes don't don't are not at the forefront of conversations, and they're not being and they're not being given the opportunity um, to have the larger impact that they want to have because they're. But and I'm saying it's not us not supporting them; it's the current institution yeah, that's supporting them also, and, and and leading to yeah. to people feeling burnt out and ending up not being yeah. able to maintain this work. Yeah, it's also very scary and a lack of infrastructure overall to support the organizing work that needs to be done towards the revolution, if we could go back to that term. Yeah. So like, you think about Black Lives Matter, right? Like, you know, and the sisters who founded that and, uh, and the organizations that were adjacent to that, um, I mean, we didn't have the infrastructure and we we're still building the infrastructures to properly support mm -hmm. that sort of a movement yeah. over the long period of time. A long period of time, um, you know, like it's it's, you know, if you got, I mean, these sisters just um, 
you know, they, they, they were tired of black people being killed by the police yeah. and called it out and, and started moving based on that. And then, but then you got, what do you do when you got, you know, white nationalists showing up at your house mm. with weapons or with a threat of violence and you don't have an army with you? Yeah. You know, and that's why, like, mm. we have to be able to defend ourselves and, and build the infrastructure necessary to manifest all of the things we don't need to be manifested. Absolutely. I feel like we've had this conversation, uh, but I mean, it, there's a couple more things I want to get, get across. Like, cool. you know, I, I, I want, like, you look in the camera and, okay. and speak to, you know, the, the, the 16 year old out there, you know, yeah. they're in high school, they're dis- kind of disaffected. Um, you know, what, what, what do you want to say specifically to them? Well, hopefully the entire conversation was, was fruitful and beneficial to you all out there. Um, you know, what I would, I would say a few things. One, follow your heart and follow your passion. And whatever that passion is, uh, it will lead you in the right direction, whatever that may be. It might be related to the topics we discussed today, maybe related to something else. Whatever it is, follow your passion. Your, your passion will never will never lead you astray. Um, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is, if you don't know what your passion is, um, plug into other people who seem like they're doing the work or, or engage in the process of continuous learning. Mm-hmm. And as you engage in the process of continuous learning, uh, you, will, you will discover a pathway for you that will allow you to... to manifest your, your your magic and your best self. Um, and when I say continuous learning, it's not just watching YouTube videos or social media videos. You gotta read, yo. Like you can't you can't cheat reading. Read everything and triangulate. So read about a topic from three different sources. And then see how the thing, how what overlaps and what doesn't, and then continue on that journey. Read articles and read books. Um, don't just read websites and blogs. Um, those are good too, but you know the ability to, dis, to you know to uh, discernly uh, pursue information and, and, and think critically about information is essential because there's so much information out there that can lead you astray. Um, and, and just, just you know, love is really important, you know. Um, love for yourself and for your neighbor um, and for your community and for the planet is really important. And with, with life being as overwhelming as it can be, sometimes you we fall into spaces of despair or anger or rage or hate. Um, but love is is the most powerful emotion in, in the universe. And it, love will lead to truth, in my opinion, and in my experience. You know, love has always led to truth. So continue to love and continue to, to live truth. Um, and, you know, and then also, you know, eat right, exercise, <laughs> and, and, and sleep uh, because you need your rest also. And surround yourself with good people, you know. Um, yeah, it's really important to have good energy around you at all times. So. I love 
And I'm just so grateful for this conversation. You gave us so much. And so we want people um, who, who got a lot from this conversation to know how they can um, engage with you and support your campaign. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, so you can go to uh, BowmanForCongress.com. Uh, you can learn more about, you know, uh, our campaign platform and some of the work we've done. Um, you can also find us on social media, Jamal Bowman NY. Um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And my first name is spelled J-A-M-A-A-L, uh, and last name B-O-W-M-A-N, same spelling, <laughs> N-Y. Uh, check us out, see what we're doing there, and DM us, and uh, you know, just, just plug in. And uh, and yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, if I could put on my official hat on, it's, it's really important for you all to also go to bowman.house.gov, just to see like some of the stuff we're actually doing in Congress. Because yeah. Bowman, for Congress.com is the campaign stuff. Bowman.house.gov is like the work we're actually doing in Congress, which is exciting stuff. And, and we're over time, but do you have a quick question that you would like to ask either or I? Uh, quick question. Um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's, you can't ask a quick question. <laughs> you know, so, so, but I gotta come back. I would love to come back. Okay. And, um, and then I, I could, we could do more of the reverse interviewing thing. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, we, we definitely appreciate you. We want oh, to yes. bless you with the, you know, nice. with the Black on Black Education wow. merch. So, oh, um, can I pick this? <laughs> if you can't, I get you to, I get you a bigger size. Be a little snub. You got a bigger size here? I don't have a bigger size here, but I'll send it to you. This this might be, I'm going to try and wear this right now. This okay. is nice. <laughs> Well, we definitely, yes, definitely, definitely, that's definitely. a quote I always use. Y'all see this quote right here? This is the quote right there, boy. Yep. Get your shirts. That's right. Facts, facts. <laughs> uh, but we thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, man. Appreciate you. We, we, we brothers in name. Yes. And, and, and now, you know, it's yeah. one of the pleasure of being able to do this. Name, name and community. Facts. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, thank you guys for uh, listening today. Well, actually, so thank y'all for listening to another episode of the Black and Black Education Podcast. We'll see you again next week.